This is Ravel, a roundtable show about the complexity of faith in the age of information. My name's Josh. I'm Steven. And I'm Emily. We each grew up in different parts of American Christianity, and we still keep thinking about how to take it seriously, even as we leave some beliefs behind. We think theology should be an exploratory dialogue, so our hope is that the show will encourage growth, both for individuals and communities. We don't have all the answers, but we're here to sort out as much as we can over a drink or two. Join us as we ravel out our faith in a complex world, pulling on one thread at a time, seeking meaning at the end of it all. Thanks for listening. What are you all drinking this week? I'm currently drinking a Rainier Mountain Fresh. I like to call it the PBR of the P&W. Solid. PBR of the P... Oh, Pacific... I was so confused for a second. Pacific Northwest is what that... Yeah. No, you're good. Rainier is a decent... Yeah. It's good. I, our equivalent here in Montana is uh, Montucky. Yep. That's good yeah. stuff. I love that beer, especially when it's ice cold. Emily, what are you drinking? I'm drinking a V8 energy drink. It's orange pineapple. It's really good. It's a good flavor combo. I'm yeah. into it. I'm. But there's no tomato in there. Well, there's this is important. Ve- there is vegetables, but no tomato. Mm. Oh, okay. Do you all like you, tomato juice? You know, that's a controversial topic. <laughs> is that for another episode? Uh, <laughs> I like I like in flight tomato. I love getting tomato juice from the uh, from the cart on a plane. What? I oh. don't know why. It just tastes so flipping good to me, especially um, when they put the little like, you know, those they're not ice cubes. They're like the little cylinders, but they have a hole in it. So it's like a extruded donut shape. Oh, yeah. I love those those ice bits. It's all psychological. It's all psychological, Stephen. There's I've absolutely nothing different about the beverage you are consuming except for the location and just the idea of it's something different. Yeah, I've heard that. So, yeah, I like tomato juice. Mm. Uh, mm. This week, I'm still I'm still powering through these two boxes of Storyville K-Cups that my friend Josh sent me when I was oh. in COVID quarantine. I didn't have COVID, but I had to lock down again. So uh, I had some good coffee to hold me over, and it's fantastic. Good. Emily, for just for the beginning of this episode, I, I wanted to ask how church was today and how celebrating All Saints Day was what that was like. Oh, yeah. So this church that I'm serving at, uh, Cody United Methodist Church, this is actually the first time that they have celebrated All Saints Day. So it was a real treat for them. Hmm. Um, oh, really? Cool. Yeah, they they were really shocked, um, but they really enjoyed it. So All Saints Day commemorates, and it's different for many denominations, but in the Methodist Church, we commemorate those who have died in our church. Um, And you Mm. typically do it within the last year, but for today, we decided we were going to open it up for anyone in our church. And we also decided that we would commemorate family members and loved ones who we considered saints in our own spiritual journeys. We had about 22 mm. names, wow. which wow. was great that we read. And then after each name was read, we light a candle in memory of them. Uh, so it's really cool because I got to share the history of All Saints Day and how it ties into other cultures and other celebrations. So like today is actually the start of Dia de los Muertos, Day of the Dead. Mm. It starts today and it ends yes. tomorrow. So, Thank you for bringing this up. Yes, I love Dia de los Muertos because... It's just something that reflects the joy of family and remembrance of loved ones who have passed. Um, and so we had our altar with the candles and I talked about, you know, on Dia de los Muertos, they have their ofrendas where they have pictures of their loved ones. And I talked about the movie Coco and how that's a great representation yes. of yes. Day of the Dead. So that was really cool. And I just kind of talked about how in all cultures, really, there is some way of remembering those who we call saints. And Mm, I talked mm. about how we as living can be saints and carry on the legacy that remains even from those who have passed on. So Mm. it was really cool. It was a really beautiful service. A lot of people were moved, which was really special. So. So yeah. did you do like a an entire service centered on this? I, I the churches did, yeah. I grew up with didn't like have any sort of All Saints recognition. So I've never like been to one of these. Yeah, we had the entire service. So we had songs that were dedicated to it. Huh. 
our liturgy, like our prayers and even our communion. Um, we have communion liturgy specifically for All Saints Day. Huh. Yeah. Josh, did you grow up in a church that recognized like a liturgical calendar at all? Uh, outside of Advent and Holy Week, I would say no. <gasps> yeah. Yeah. This is where I've, I, I think... like recently discovered that with Episcopalianism. Oh, yeah. I believe it. I think we should allow Emily an episode oh, yes. sometime soon to talk about the church calendar and what it means to engage in it every year. Because I, I like how it establishes mm-hmm. such a... Such a, it's like a grounding cyclical nature. Like it tunes you into the the seasons as well. Tunes you into like but the turnover of a year. It also is great because you can talk about the faults of the liturgical calendar because there are. Oh. Yes, there are. Oh. I think okay. I should so, do an episode about this. Okay. Yeah. Teaser. Drop the teaser right there. there you episode go. forthcoming. I today was wondering if you two would indulge me in a, uh, in a continued conversation about the Enneagram, we came out of our last episode where, where Which, Josh... Which episode 10? What? That was Thank episode 10. Thank you for this. One, Celebrate zero, 10. The double digits. Woo-woo. So good. Yeah, so we came out of episode 10, Woot, where Josh like very gently and very graciously pointed out that I might be interpreting his agreeableness for like him buying into the things I'm saying, which I understand that sometimes I say things that are just absolutely off the wall. So, <laughs> so it's not good to assume you guys agree with me, but you guys got me thinking about the Enneagram and I'm wondering if you would indulge me in, in a further conversation about it and how it informs your theology of embodiment. Oh, okay. So sure. yeah. I guess uh, just, just as a primer, so we have revealed that the two of you identify as Enneagram Nines, mm-hmm. who are affectionately called the peacemakers at the very top of the Enneagram shape. You kind of straddle the the gap between the heart and the mind on either side, and you're dead center of what is called the body triad. Mm-hmm. I identify as an Enneagram One, and I find myself in the body triad as well. So I thought this would be a fun conversation for us to kind of roundtable what our experiences are of our bodies and what it means to be in a body and affirmed as an image bearer with a body. So I guess to open it up, what does embodiment mean to you? Like what comes up in you when I, when I use that word? I think what mostly comes up for me is uh, I'm reminded of Rene Descartes writings on like the dualism of the body and the mind. And that was like a really popular Mm. thought during the enlightenment and that the Mm -hmm. body and the mind are uh, like separate entities. And that kind of like plays off of some of the uh, early philosophy about um, like we are spirits trapped inside a body. Very heavy uh, platonic influences there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Not like platonic as in friends, but as in Plato. Pluto. Yeah. Plato. Pluto. Pluto? I said (laughs) Wait, did I say Pluto? You no, know, no, no, I did. did. That's what I like think of initially when you bring up embodiment. But in terms of the Enneagram, I honestly don't know that much about like those, like the body, heart, mind triages or whatever. So I'm not sure if I have like really thought about this before in terms of like how the Enneagram oh. relates to embodiment. But I this do have will. some thoughts about embodiment because I've thought about this for a couple years that I almost wonder if our like modern stage of society or, or postmodern, if you want to talk about that intersection, I almost wonder if we currently have this struggle with embodiment because of mm. how many uh, like hobbies and activities we have that are so body centric, like mm, working sure. out at the gym. Like a lot of people get a lot of value from that, and I think it's because we don't feel embodied otherwise. Yeah, so we create a temple for doing embodied activities, and we call it the gym. Yeah, exactly. That's one way to frame it, right? So that's kind of like that's kind of where my mind's at right now. That's what sure. you're thinking about. Emily, what comes up for you? I think the first word that came to mind for me was connection. Oh. Just that I, so typically and I can definitely say this for myself where nines are usually like the spiritual seekers or like they want to have some type of connection with people and the cosmos, the universe, whatever it is. Mhm. And I definitely find that for myself. And I think it just kind of worked out nicely that I am a pastor because that is the epitome of what (laughs) I strive to do is to 
create and have connections with people and with God and, you know, trying to to seek out more and having a peace of mind that I can maintain and establish peace and harmony in, you know, the world around me um, mm. and, and actually be present, like being embodied in that world, in that space. Mm. What does the nickname do for both of you? What does it mean to be a peacemaker versus a peacekeeper? I'm curious. You can't mm. keep peace. Like I, I, me personally, I can't. You have to make something in order to keep it first. Yeah, it makes me think a lot of like cause and effect. Like, yeah, um, if I've had like a super busy week, I like I know that I need to do certain things to like wind down and to like spend time alone. And and then it makes me think of like when I'm if I'm ever in a situation, whether it's at work or with friends, and I feel like there's something that needs to be resolved, I feel like I can initiate that like mm-hmm. through cause and effect. Mm, like it, it, right. to me, like peacemaking feels much more active than. Yeah, I think it's more. Like what you were saying. I think it's more communal to make something because you have the opportunity then to share it, whereas to keep something, it's for yourself. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's like giving it away instead yeah, of hoarding keep it. Yeah, keep is a very possessive word, whereas huh. make is something like like Josh said, it's active, but it's it can be communal or it can be something that's shared or to yourself that's you know there's that freedom to do it whereas keeping is a very limited term in my opinion sure steven could you maybe describe a little bit about the different uh like i don't know what they're called like the trios of the enneagram that are kind of separated by these things because i'm not super familiar with them either so the eights nines and ones find themselves in the body triad and they kind of cap off the shape and they each have a different relationship to their body as, and when I say body, it's like, that's our dominant mode of knowing things and experiencing things. So mm. eights, nines, and ones have different relationships to their bodies. We all experience anger in different ways, but anger is attributed to the body triad. Eights wear anger on their sleeves. They're almost constantly angry. It's kind of like the Hulk is like, I'm always angry, but I know how to control it in that famous Avengers line nines. So this, this is uh, where I was curious to go next with you two, but uh, I'll give more on the Enneagram first. So nines, their basic uh, what's called a vice is actually sloth. And what, what that presents itself as in your guys's life is you kind of almost fall asleep to yourself. Um, And this is where over agreeableness might become an issue because you're falling asleep to yourself. You're not willing to share or you're not even aware that you're not sharing your own opinions. You're just trying to absorb and try and keep peace among people who you might disagree with. And because you don't want to threaten the relationship, um, because the basic fear is loss and separation Mm -hmm. from your community and from those you love, then you fall asleep to yourself and you, uh, you let others kind of trample, I guess. And ones we experience, like I experience anger in a way that I kind of like, I let it boil and then simmer a little further down under the surface. And if I don't find ways to express it or healthy ways of like bringing the temperature down, then it presents itself as resentment. So like, I'll just have anger just kind of like blow out the side of my holding tank. And all of a sudden I can just explode on people I love with a lot of bitterness and resentment for things I probably haven't voiced. The pressure gets too big and then it just like, flips my lid all of a sudden Mm. so that's us that's eights nines and ones two threes and fours are in the hearts triad which are typically attributed to like feelings dominant people and Mm. then five six and sevens find themselves in the mind um so they're thinking dominant people and there's Mm. there's all sorts of different triangles and triads that you can map on top of the enneagram that relate you to pretty much every other number uh, but mm-hmm. that's kind of the that's kind of our basic here. So mm, especially for okay. nines, your anger will probably. Well, I I don't want to put this in your head. What is your guys's experience of anger, and where do you feel it in your body? Oh, I don't feel like I feel anger in my body. I also very rarely feel like I experience or express anger. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Either at myself or other people. Oh, that's interesting. 
But I do, you, like, when I'm stressed or frustrated, I definitely, like, hold tension in my neck and my shoulders, for sure. That counts. Oh. Yeah. That, that is an embodied answer, yeah. I would suggest. Like, that's you yeah. actually paying attention to where it's presencing itself. That's good. We are actually taught to do this in clinical pastoral education. Um, really? It's, oh. part of, it's part of the action reflection action model that I talked about earlier. Huh. So, like, for example, we would come together and we would have a verbatim of a particular client or patient that we had seen that week, and we would share that verbatim, and then our supervisor would ask us, okay, so let's reflect now. And so she would ask us to answer all these questions based on what we were feeling, like, physically. You know, was our stomach upset? Were we getting a headache? Were we carrying tension mm. in our shoulders? You know, yeah. were we moving or shifting our weight in our seat were we crossing our legs like what were those things that were physically helping us to let out what we were feeling mentally and i find myself thinking back to that and i find that i carry my anger in different parts of my body and it depends on either who i'm angry at or if it's like certain times of the year i know like seasonal depression i kind of get like a seasonal anger vibe um uh, uh, what <laughs> no it's true i i tend Wait, what yes huh yeah and i'll find that like my intestines really get complicated around this time of year and whoa that feeds into how i'm feeling like if i'm angry or upset or frustrated but yeah it kind of depends on the situation for me um but i don't get mm. angry a lot so that's mm. a good thing <laughs> yeah it's been suggested that people like you who identify as nines typically feel their anger less as like a boiling over mm -hmm. an actual wrathful or rageful feelings, but it actually presences itself more as uh, fatigue mm. and anxiety. Mm -hmm. mm. Does that track? Yeah. You think uh, that yeah, that makes two? more sense to me, actually, for that sure. That is Because uh, what it's doing, as, as far as I understand the Enneagram, the numbers that are in the very center of each triad, so nines, threes, and sixes, mm. they find themselves right in the middle of their triads. So for you two, it's you're right in the middle of the body triad. But these these core numbers or these anchor points, as they're called, you're dominant in the body because you're in the body triad. But all these types actually fall asleep to their their dominant modes of being and knowledge. So threes actually fall asleep to their feelings and they're often interpreted as very cold calculated achievement oriented people and sixes fall asleep to their their thinking capacities and mm. this is why sixes are always stereotypically called the worst case scenario people because they they let their thinking actually turn negative and they start spiraling into the absolute worst case scenario mm. every morning like as soon as they wake up they're already thinking about how the day could be going wrong yeah so for nines this like this falling asleep action turns into anger presence presencing itself as fatigue and really like that's why sloth is kind of put forward for your yeah you're just kind of like loss of centeredness mm -hmm. what do you feel like the enneagram has helped you i guess i'm kind of curious from either one of you what do you think the enneagram has helped like reveal about your relationship with embodiment and what it means to be like aware of yourself mm. i think for me and this is this is actually why I'm kicking off this episode is I have discovered and learned to treasure a brand new theology of the body. And in turn, mm. it has taught me to love the act um, of communion or Eucharist a lot more and treat it with a lot more sacred space than I used to mm. getting into possibly even some more classically Catholic theology where I don't know if I can wholesale buy into the concept of transubstantiation yet, but I think there's something about celebrating Eucharist, taking the bread and the wine, breaking the bread. There is something that seems a lot more holy and a lot more sacred to the act than just pure symbolism as I was raised to consider it. Mm. Mm -hmm. So it's been teaching me a lot about that. Uh, it has also allowed me to confidently lay down theologies about total depravity and original sin. Hmm. Um, and on a, on a more practical level, it has taught me to meditate on a daily basis and really pay attention. Well, 
something in the last like few weeks that I've really been starting to pay attention to. And what the Enneagram is actively teaching me about embodiment is what foods help my body be the best, feel the best. Mm. Like what, what, what healthy foods are allowing me to thrive instead of putting a lot of processed or, or prepackaged, uh, very mm-hmm. <laughs> toxic ingredients in my body. So that's, that's what I'm actively learning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can we clarify what transubstantiation is? Yeah. So as, as far as I understand it, and Emily, feel free to comment on this when I'm done here, but uh, transubstantiation is a Catholic belief that the, the, the bread literally becomes the body of Christ once it is blessed, broken, and um, ingested. Yes. Okay. Okay, that tracks. That's what I'm <laughs> glad I got okay. that right. A plus, Stephen. A plus. There we go. Um, yeah, so that's that's mm. what it's teaching me. Emily, what about you? I think for me, it's recognizing that it's tempting for a nine, and me in particular, to want to ignore disturbing elements of my life or to kind of numb mm. out pain and suffering. Mm. But I have found for myself that pain and suffering is a very comforting and healing process as a human being. And I think All Saints Day actually is a great way to bring about that because in my sermon, I had talked about how, you know, we can grieve the loss of these saints, but the fact that they have left a legacy for us to continue on in their faithful mission as children Mm. of God, you know, we can still carry that grief and that sadness of knowing they are no longer here physically, but they are gathered at the table with us spiritually and they're guiding us to live out as Christians, to be Christ-like and not to just profess our faith, but to actually be present and to live out our faith, Um, that they were reminders for us. And so I'm remembering the martyrs of of ancient times. I'm remembering those mm. who marched and those who faced persecution for the betterment of our world. You know, they faced horrible, painful things because they yearned for something more. I don't know about you guys, but I've always taken a lot of comfort in the idea of Jesus being incarnated. Like, even growing up, I feel like I heard lots of people talk about how different that was from any other religion. Mm. And that most other religions are very ethereal, uh, often not centered on or began by people who were like depicting the divine as a body. But like, I guess my, the the first example that comes to mind is like Mormonism. Like even though Mormonism had a founder, it was founded on the premise of like this spirit coming to him. Not like a, mm. not like a real embodied person, but like a spirit from a different life. And I just feel like I always heard that contrast growing up that like, this is what makes Christianity so distinct is that God came as a man. God came as a human. And that's profound. Yeah, precisely. And that affirms us, therefore. Yeah. I like that word affirm there. I think that's absolutely what it does. Especially contrasting that idea with Buddhism, as far as I understand Buddhism, which is mm-hmm. very, very elementary. But the concept of enlightenment is achieving like an other bodiness. Like mm-hmm. essentially it's almost encouraging a falling asleep to the body to allow your spirit or soul to, which kind of gets back to that idea of, of Plato's where it's like we're spirits or souls trapped in like a, a weird meat husk with bones and dust and fingernails, you know? Mm-hmm. And yet, and yet we have the Christ presencing itself in Jesus who also was born to, you know, like this is, this is what I was getting at where I was like, I've been given a lot, what I feel to be a lot more healthy theologies around original blessing opposed to original sin or total depravity or something like the fact that Mm. Jesus Christ was born and chose to be, you know, uh, Paul famously says he, he did not consider equality with God to be something to be grasped and instead laid down his, his heavenly rights and became a, like became a baby. And this was something I learned holding my Mm. nephew this last week was like, 
holding mm. this little guy who's barely over eight pounds, completely, completely dependent on his mother and father to make sure he survives his first couple of years of life before his body can start taking over some of those functions. It was one of those things where I was just holding him like, Jesus was one of these. <laughs> and he trusted mm. himself to like a 13-year-old girl mm. to, to shepherd him into the world. And he had to, like, he then went through puberty. <laughs> like, all these things about affirming the body, they seem so obvious now to me when I put this lens on of sacred embodiment. So what do you feel like you can conclude from, like, if the incarnation affirms this idea of, I guess it's kind of, for me, this goes back to, like, the idea of being created in God's image, like, Mm. I think that's often talked about in terms of God's character, but if Jesus coming as a human also affirms our physical being, oh sure, what do you feel like the implications are of that? Wow, that's a good one. Emily, can I hear from you first? Yeah. One of, one of the things that popped into my mind as we were talking about, well, Stephen, you were talking about knowing that, oh my gosh, like Jesus was this little tiny baby and then, you know, hit puberty and then was a man and it made me thinking about um, when I went to the Holy Land and I was talking with my professor, we we're in Jerusalem, we were in the old city and we're just walking, you know, through through the streets and we're talking about how, you know, since Jesus was a man, like, did he have urges? And like, we were just talking mm. about anything you could possibly think of. And it made me realize how truly amazing our bodies can be, you know, that our our bodies can do amazing things and there are things that we don't even still fully completely understand, I'm sure, about the human body. And so I was looking because mm. I had remembered my youth pastor, Brian, who was so great um, and is still great to this day. He you know, helped me get on my path to be a pastor. He had shared with us about this protein that's in the human body, and it's actually in the shape of a cross. Oh, I've heard of this. Yeah. The, yeah, I feel like that too. Lemonin protein. Yep. That holds cells within bodies together. And so I was thinking like that's that's just one way we can see God's mercy and love at work is the cross. And we even carry that <laughs> symbol within our physical bodies. That's just mm. amazing to me. Yeah. I think I think that idea is compelling, and at the same time, it's one of those things that I've heard in enough sermons where it's like, okay, that just seems way too convenient. Like it's like we're stretching <laughs> to match the pattern to the reality, you know? We could, we could. I, I'm, I'm not trying to undersell what you just gave us, Emily. It's just like it's one of those things where it's like you hear a pastor talk about that, and you're like, okay, okay, really? <laughs> it makes you think. But I- I did like how you brought it back to you. Like it can be a reminder for yeah, no, absolutely, the cross being the center of everything. Yeah, certainly, I do think that's kind of interesting. One of the things you made me think of is uh, the the tendency in I think I think it's mostly Paul. So correct here if I'm wrong, but there's so much phrasing around like the the desires of the flesh or like mm. the flesh being weak and stuff like mm. that. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, like it is Paul. It is mostly Paul. Okay. That contrast to me seems really interesting when like it reading the gospel, it seems super obvious that Jesus coming as a human is super big deal. Mm-hmm. So, but then there's like also all of this language around like the flesh is weak and like the flesh has bad desires and like stuff like that. But like you pointed out, Emily, that like Jesus was human and yeah. Jesus had urges. And I remember hearing this story one time of this academic speaking at a big conference and they just got up to the podium and said, Jesus had a penis. Yes. And Jesus woke up a little hard sometimes in the morning and he went through those weird pubescent stages just like everyone else because he was human. Yeah. Mm. And I, I think that there's this weird contrast in scripture of like Jesus is human. Jesus died. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus was born. But also flesh bad question mark. And like, I kind mm. of don't really know how to wiggle around that. Mm-hmm. I've heard Paul's language around flesh attributed more to 
kind of the concept of the outsized ego or mm. like the false, the concept of the false self within mm, you. Okay. Right. The one that tries to wrap a lot of accomplishment and achievement. And uh, I mean, it literally is ego. If we're going to put it in that language. Sure. I, I've heard flesh attributed to that. And at mm. the same time, I've also heard when he talks about powers and principalities, you know, it's, it's easy to interpret that as hyper spiritual, like demons, angels, whatever we've had, we have an episode about mm-hmm. it, but I have recently heard ideas of powers and principalities actually applied to things like nation states and mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. corporate structures and labor unions. Like these are mm-hmm. the things that gain a spiritual weight to them when they're put together by humans, but they're not necessarily, you know, like we said in episode nine, like the, the prince demons that are like assigned to every nation fighting each other. So like, I think it's easy to read flesh and spiritual language into Paul and assume mm-hmm. a platonic like mind body dualism to it or spirit body dualism to it. Josh, hmm. Josh, I do think you bring something valid, though, because and Stephen, you as well. I think you bring up something valid because I think it's easy for us to not want to read what Paul is writing as talking about, like, our physical bodies and desire. But I think we uh-huh. need to tackle that topic, because if we're truly to believe that God is present in our lives, then we need to come to terms with that Jesus was present as a human being. and talking about Jesus as the divine and Jesus as human. We want to separate that so mm. neatly, but they're so entangled that you can't really separate that identity. And so I think it is important that and I try to do this with with my church, you know, talking about here's this first century Palestinian Jew who, you know, he went to school and was probably bullied for all we know and he you know, was helping with the stonemason work that he was doing because he wasn't a carpenter. He was a stonemason and, you know, probably <laughs> broke bones. He probably. Fun fact. Yeah, mm. Fun fact. He probably scraped his knee and he probably, you know, mm. had sex and he probably, you Whoa. know, probably, probably got up, food poisoning. Up. The list goes on. Sorry, but the list goes on. But you went way far too far past. <laughs> Probably had sex. Oh, he probably did. He probably Whoa, did. Whoa, hot take. Whoa. What? Yes. Okay, but you do. Okay. Where do you, you bring get, up? Go ahead, Josh. I don't, I don't even <laughs> well, know where I was going to gonna say, this isn't actually super related to that point, but I, you brought up a good point, Emily, that I just started thinking about that we, uh, there's a, a lot of talk around Jesus being perfect. Like he was without sin. Uh, like Paul yeah. says somewhere, like he was without blemish. Um, and we take that usually to mean he was sinless and lived the quote unquote perfect life. But right. do we then conclude that Jesus had a quote unquote perfect body? Mm-hmm. Kind of like you brought up, like he probably broke bones. And did he like cut himself and like immediately heal himself? Kind of like Christopher Moore, mm. like <laughs> writes him in uh, right. the gospel according to Biff. Like did yeah. Jesus just like. Not And also, did Jesus experience pain? Because I think that's significant. I think there's a lot of things that we experience in our bodies that, frankly, I've heard Christians write off as, well, your body is broken because of the fall. But frankly, I don't like that language because, like, if Jesus experienced pain and suffering the same way we did, and in a lot of cases worse because he was crucified, I think that's significant. To me, that also affirms the design of our bodies to experience suffering. Like, can you imagine if we as conscious beings did not experience physical pain at all, but we had bodies? Mm. Oh, that would be so bizarre. That's actually a a disorder where some people's pain centers in their brains are turned off and they can like, they'll burn their skin to a third degree and have no sense of it. It and it's, messes it's con- with them. It's considered a disorder because they're going about life not getting the warning signals that our bodies are appropriately tuned sure. to light up for us when we do things that are dangerous to our existence mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. our continued life. Yeah. Man. So 
that raises another question in me, though. If pain was always going to be part of it, which I think could be argued from the first chapters of Genesis, where God says your pain in childbirth will be increased, oh, not yeah. necessarily turned on, mm. that, could, that could easily be argued. But then can we go further and say death as a concept was already part of what's classically called pre-fall existence? Because if we're going to feel pain, I mean, the the dumb example is people have done the math and it's like, if there was literally no death and the fall never happened, then <laughs> they, they've calculated like a very specific point in time where the mass of just the multiplying insects that never dies is greater than the mass of the earth itself. Mm. Like if death was never part of it, then we have a lot more things to deal with too, don't mm. we? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Well, oh. plus there's the whole idea of like our resurrected bodies, mm. however that's supposed to look, being yeah. like made perfect and eternal. And to be honest, I'm not really sure where we find that. Do you know, Emily? Right. Um, mm, I'm on it. Okay. There's some Paul, there's some Peter as well that talk about like our resurrected state, I believe. I also think it's significant that Jesus comes back after the resurrection in a body he doesn't like appear as a ghost or he doesn't yeah he's not like appearing as a spirit a body that eats breakfast on the shores of the sea right he's like he's doing a fish cookout and eating breakfast with peter and john Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. this is a big deal this is a big deal too yeah well oh so not only that but he comes back in his body that has his scars (laughs) oh yes And I think this speaks a lot and it can be harmful for some people because you think about, like Josh, you were saying earlier, being made in God's image. Okay, so what about people who are quadriplegic or Mm -hmm. people who are blind or people who have any other physical, you know, ailments? What does that mean then for their resurrected body? Were their bodies not perfect before? Mm Mm-hmm. And what does it mean when when they're will they get new bodies? Like it it's almost like a outdated upgrade model scenario. And it has always mm, really whoa. made me feel <laughs> bad. Like, like trading in your iPhone six for the iPhone twelve or whatever. Yeah. And I feel like that can lead <laughs> us down a very dangerous path as Christians to then say, Well, don't worry, because in the next life you'll have a perfect body and Mm-hmm. You're just telling that person that the gifts that God has given them cannot be put to use because they can't walk or because they can't hear. It's horrible. Mm. And this whole idea of like embodiment is so important for everyone to hear because everyone is capable of doing so much, really, no matter what their physical state is. It's knowing that the fact that they are present on this earth and can contribute to their families or society or whatever the case may be. And like God is wanting us to do that in a way, but to also look at what are those things that are hindering us then, like physically? What what are ways that we are not mm. embodying the way that we should be? Mm. Mm. You also made me think of, um, I can't quote to a specific source on this, but to my knowledge, a very similar theology and concept was used to justify eugenics and also the the Nazi regime trying to stamp out disabilities from the population. Like the idea of like a perfect body or like some bodies being worse or more Ooh. broken than others. Sure. Yeah. And I yeah, think you're because- right, Emily. I think like that is evidence enough that this is an important thing to think about and have a healthy conceptualization and theology of yeah yeah because it has some life and death implications absolutely yeah eugenics teaches us that some people think that they get to be the final judge of what a perfect body is mm-hmm. right and you know mm-hmm. classically the germans uh would define that as aryan blonde hair blue eyes these are the perfect people but i think the con the concept of the Imago Dei or the image of God being implanted in every human being. It's like the fact that you have a body already means mm-hmm. that you've been given a perfect body. I think I'd be willing to say that mm. even if you are experiencing 
disability in some way. Um, mm-hmm. you know, like, like Emily just suggested, like that doesn't, it doesn't disqualify you from presencing the very presence and the gifts that spirit has in, indwelt you with mm-hmm. because you can't walk or because you can't speak. Like, uh, man, that's, that's just so hard to fathom for me at this point in my life that you could say like my body isn't good because it doesn't look this way, act this way, isn't the right color, doesn't grow the right, you know, I don't know. It's mm. okay. But also how do we make sense of Jesus healing ailments of the body, like the paraplegic or the blind man, or are those just meant to be taken as like prophetic parables for the kingdom of God? Oh, I definitely think it's not to be taken literally. Oh, really? Yeah. Could you say more about that? What do you mean? Uh, okay. Well. A lot of controversial statements from <sighs> Reverend Emily today. <laughs> I don't, I, I think, yes, like, okay, so here's a great example. When I was in the Holy Land, we went to, um, oh, I'm already blanking on the name. Oh, this is so bad. <laughs> Uh, Magdala. We went to Magdala, where Mary Magdalene is from, and we were there in a a church that was built. And there was a woman who was speaking about her issues with hemorrhaging and with infertility and and things like that. And she was so brave to share her story about her healing, in the sense of being spiritually healed and not physically healed of those ailments. And I uh. think. It's a way for us to explore the allegory of healing. We have this picture of Jesus touching someone and they're able to see it's meant to be a representation, not to be taken literally. And I think it's because of the idea of you were born into this body, you are still loved, even if you can't see, but I'm going to help you see spiritually. I'm going to help you see more beyond your human capabilities into the divine. Wow. And I think yeah. that's what we're supposed to be capturing from that. You're making me think of the story. He, Jesus heals a blind man. And before he is healed, I forget how he heals this. Because what's interesting is every time he heals a blind Are person. Are you talking about the guy who takes, he takes dirt or mud and he spits in it and then rubs it on his eyes? I think that's the guy because the disciples ask Jesus, what did this guy do to deserve this defect? Like, is he blind because of something he did? But he was born that way. So was it his parents mm-hmm. who sinned and now he's having the punishment enacted or or somehow like that represents the punishment to the parents because a blind, ineffectual male heir can't provide for the family. Like there's a lot of like power dynamic there already, but the disciples are like, how... How is this guy born blind? How is that okay? Is that mm-hmm. the sin of his parents? He heals him. And all this guy, like Jesus, I might be conflating two stories, but I'm pretty sure this is the guy who comes back to the Sanhedrin or the uh, the Pharisees and is like, all I know is that this guy showed up in my life and now I can see. Yes. No, you're thinking it's in, it's found in John. Okay. Um, and- I've actually been to this place, too, where he talks to... Oh, this is so neat. Um, Can I just say, Emily, that I think when I was in, like, quote, when I was in the Holy Land, unquote, is like the ultimate name drop for our podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, absolutely. I just have to point that out. Continue, please. You've been there. So it it is found in John, and so he, he is approached... He's actually walking through Jerusalem... And he sees the man, um, like, begging on the side of the road. And, yeah, the disciples are asking, was it his sin or his parents' sin? And mm. and he says, neither this man or his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Mm. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And then so he does. He he. I can just imagine he gets on like his hands and knees and he just like scrapes up a bunch of dirt, just hawks a big loogie and like rubs it in his hands. And then he rubs it on the man's eyes and and he's healed. And he actually says, I am the man or I am. And then when the man is able to see, 
And people are like, how is it that your eyes are opened? He just replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. And that's that's the pool. Um, it's actually still in Jerusalem. It's an incredible sight to see, really. So, hey, that's ironic. Sight to see. Is that <laughs> is this something, though, that you're trying to argue is still allegorical in some yes. way? Yes. Hmm. Man. I and do. I want I want to say I'm very okay, okay but, with physical miracle in this way and that he's actually I think it could be both and yeah, I was going to say the perhaps, same thing. Perhaps his eyes are being healed and he can actually see because we're given imagery of like of light of the world, right? Mm-hmm. The darkness has fallen away from your eyes. So that easily gets to be applied to um a well, so this this is coming back to like a dualist idea of like the eyes are healed and the spirit's healed and like mm-hmm. The, the born again vision sure. is implied. But I think I I want to be less dualistic about it. And I say maybe in the healing of the physical eyes was also the hearing of the healing of the spiritual. Because I think mm. embodiment means that spirit and body are so intertwined that we mm. can't separate mm-hmm. them. We can't say, oh, he was he was spiritually healed, but you know, his eyes are still bunk. Sure. You know, like I So that's a good mm. point. Yeah. But I think so, you also and have, have you to... ever, have you ever like gotten a hug from someone, and in the moment you were like, "Oh my god, that's exactly what I needed," mm. and I didn't know release. that. Yeah. And like that, True. that physical, that meeting of the physical is what like settles your spirit. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. And yeah, I yeah. think and we so do kind of have on the same page with you. I think, and I think we do have to be careful though, because then you read into the interpretation of, so why was why was he healed, but I can't, or you know. Mm. It can come back to that ableism interpretation. And that's where biblical interpretation is a very delicate subject. Because, you know, I I don't, I'm not saying this to spark controversy or because I believe it, but a thought comes in every now and then. And I've had conversations with people too, where they ask, did Jesus actually heal every person he encountered that asked Mm. to be healed? Mm. Yeah, I've heard that one too. You know, or did every person that come up to him that had an ailment, did they actually want to be healed from that ailment? Or was there something mm. else that they were seeking? Oh, yeah. I mean, Jesus mm. even asked that of the one guy. He's like, hey, what do you want? And the guy's like, well, I want to be healed. And he asked him a second time. He's like, do, is that actually what you want? Let's clarify. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Emily, you made me think of, I, I don't remember which one of you brought this up, actually, but about the the man who was blind and his parents, like it, w- it would have been assumed that his parents had done something to punish his body. Through their mm. sin. Yep. And you made me think of um, this quote from the philosopher, sociologist, Michel Foucault. Mm. Um, he said in one of his books, um, I think it was Society and Punishment, something like that. I'll look up the name of the book. But his quote is, is it surprising that the cellular prison, with all its regular chronologies, forced labor, its authorities of surveillance and registration, its experts in normality who continue and multiply the functions of the judge should have become the modern instrument of penality. Is it surprising that prisons resemble factories, schools, barracks, hospitals, which all resemble prisons? And this quote has been used famously to like tie together that even in our modern society, we have taken these old ideas of the, the monastic cell and like self-flagellation that were really common in like wow like the medieval church the idea wow. that like we need to like have penance for the body like it all started in theology and he traces wow. like the the direct correlation between the the use of the monastic cell and self punishment to like modern day imprisonment and like mm. how we are still punishing the body wow yeah. and you just made me think of that and like how like we still have this problem of like well what your parents do Mm-hmm. To like cause this punishment, like we still have this like lineage sure. of yeah, like the it's past is informing how idea. we're punishing the body still. Oh, I'm really glad you brought that up. I this is one of my questions I had for you too. Um, oh, to to bring it back to a little more personal experiences of embodiment, I was I was going to ask because there's there's some stance, what's called stance work in the Enneagram, mm-hmm. and you folks as nines. Also, fours and fives find themselves in the stance that orient themselves to time 
dominantly in the past. And I was so curious to ask, like, what mm. what does that what does that idea bring up for you, given all the theologies we have we've covered so far? Um, all the like the biblical concepts, like what is your relationship to the past and is it generally positive, generally negative? And how do, how do you find that presencing mm. in your life? I think for me, I used to feel a lot of shame, especially in relation to my body and really feeling like a, a specific correlation between sin and the body. Mm. I think I really, really felt that like physically for a long time. Right. Because we get um, that from Paul too, where he says mm-hmm. like yeah. in Timothy, where he's like, you, you got to train your body. Otherwise you're going to be... Yeah you know, like exercise self-control over your body so that you can, you know, your body can serve you instead of you serve your bodily urges. Kind of, he's doing that, that Mm -hmm. dualistic flip-flop again, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Wow. Josh, thank you for saying that, like, shame was how that, that came up for you Mm -hmm. um, in the past. But actually, I liked how you brought up self-control because that makes me think of the other fruits of the spirit. And like, if we're not equally applying the other fruits of the spirit in addition to self-control like if we are not also being gentle to ourselves Mm -hmm. then that's not of the spirit yeah fun fact in that passage which i believe fruits of the spirit comes from galatians 6 Mm -hmm. um your your scripture memory is so much better than mine there are (laughs) no it's just coming out of me this is so weird but uh (laughs) there are i i've seen i don't know this is one of those things where it's like you know, the cross in that protein, maybe it's a stretch to help us draw a sermon analogy, but I, I've i seen the nine types of the Enneagram mapped onto the nine fruits of the spirit mentioned in Galatians oh, 6. I, oh, I believe it. Yeah. Isn't that wild? It's kind of like how SpongeBob represents the seven deadly sins. Like each main <laughs> character of SpongeBob represents the seven deadly sins. I've never heard that, but that's so good. Yes. Oh my Lanta, where have you guys been? That's so uh, I love SpongeBob as a kid. This is so good. There you go. So, Emily, I'm curious, what is your relationship to time and what does it mean um when I tell you that nines are typically like oriented to the past? Yeah, I that's definitely on point for me. And I would say my experience, you know, looking back um, has been pretty positive, especially with how I see my body and learning about like what I am capable of um, and where I can grow. And part of that, I think, has to I think part of that is largely because I am a woman and I'm learning, mm. you know, I'm at that age where, you know, my husband and I are wanting to start a family and I'm learning about wow. all the things that really go in hand with trying to have a baby. Like, it's not just mm. get at it and go. It really isn't, um, <laughs> as some people might think. Um, wow. You just learn, you learn a lot about body, mind, spirit. Yes, they're all important. But I think it's easy for us to kind of put our body at the bottom because we just think, we feel yeah. that it's just there. It you know, it just is. It can function right. on its own. We don't have to think about breathing. We don't have to think about our intestines working. We don't have to think about, you know, our little baby toe keeping us balanced and our ears helping us balance. There are just things mm. that our body is so huh. self-sufficient with that we just want to say, well, it's fine. It's just yeah. my body. It's doing its our, thing. I think our theology is around the body easily put that easily put the body at the bottom of the list as well as yeah. just our culture right like oh for sure there's there's a lot of body image worship but it's not like you know it's all it's all outward mm-hmm. um expressions of the body versus actually getting in tune with your body like paying attention to yeah. what you eat does the exercise it makes you feel good because endorphins right. are released to help mask the pain of jostling your organs around you know like and i've learned to love my body even through all its changes you know like through puberty and you know <laughs> the freshman 15 in college wow. and you know COVID just knowing yeah yeah right yeah and just knowing <laughs> that our bodies change just like our beliefs change or our mentalities change mm. and yeah it's really helping me to center on you know i can acknowledge the bad things that have happened to me in the past and how that has hurt me. But I can also choose to say, okay, I'm now looking forward at, because of this, look at where I'm at now with yeah, my body. Yeah. Um, you know, my stretch marks tell a story. 
And every little mm. scar and nick that I have on me, every blemish, you know, when mm. I cut my hair, I'm re-envisioning myself. And when I get tattoos, I'm telling a story on this beautiful canvas that God gave me. That's my skin. And mm. there's just so much to be grateful wow. for, I think, for me personally. Wow. That is absolutely beautiful. I love well, thank that. You. Thank you. for Thank you for sharing that. I did have a thought. So I presented this in a couple episodes back. I've been reading Leaders Eat Last by Simon Sinek, and he talks about all the feel-good chemicals that we get. Namely, the one I want to bring up now is oxytocin. And Josh, you've already actually commented on this by the fact that, you know, your, your story about, you know, when you get a hug and that ends up being exactly what you needed, mm-hmm. that's oxytocin being released. And that mm-hmm. allows us to form bonds of friendship and trust with the people in our community, and it makes us feel safe. Oxytocin makes us feel safe. Whereas cortisol, which is the famous anxiety chemical that our brain produces and releases, cortisol specifically blocks oxytocin. So when we start feeling disembodied or we're leaning too far into the the mind-soul or the body-soul dualism idea, when we're isolated, example, COVID, We get a lot more cortisol than we get oxytocin, but I've learned recently. And as far as I can tell, there's, there's some actual research on it. I can't quote it directly. I probably wouldn't even be able to find links to it, but I have read it. I've heard it about how we can actually gift ourselves oxytocin because oxytocin is transmitted through physical touch between two people, but in an embodied experience of being a human being, we're finding actually that we can gift ourselves oxytocin. If you gently and lovingly place a hand on your chest and your stomach. And I find that absolutely beautiful. Like the fact that the Christ in us, the the beautiful thing about being a body, like we can, we can actually complete the circuit just in ourselves, just like Mm -hmm. by placing a loving hand on our chest and our belly and just being able to, it's almost like you're talking to your body at that point, which might encourage that dualistic idea. But for me, I experience it like when I practice prayer in the morning and meditation, I intentionally put my hands there. um, And I've actually just recently had what felt like a very spiritual, almost mystical experience where for the first time in my life, a 25 year old man who has always been overweight, always been made fun of for my, my man boobs or my belly, you know, always self-conscious about these things. I placed my hands on my body and in my prayer, Speaking to my body, I said, thank you for being my body Mm. and thank you for taking care of me for 25 years. And now Mm. collaborate with me and teach me how to love you better. So this is Mm -hmm. why like really paying attention to what I'm eating now is a new focus. And I definitely didn't arrive Mm. here by accident. I have to say that I think one of the, (laughs) one of the greatest gifts I've been given in my life is the voice of Dr. Hillary McBride through the liturgists and her podcast, other people's problems. Um, mm. Cause mm-hmm. this is her whole area of research and focus mm-hmm. when she does therapy, it's all embodiment. There's a fantastic liturgists episode that I'll put in the show notes uh, because she takes the lead on it. And she, she has a very fruitful conversation about embodiment that has taught me so much. And this is what the gift of the Enneagram has taught me too, is like the fact that I'm in the body triad means something and i should actually pay attention to it i can Mm. second recommending her podcast other people's problems especially if you want to like hear what it's like to be in therapy if you've never been in therapy before yeah and her her uh she does it really well because she like records her sessions but she'll like break away in the middle of the session to talk to you the listener about why she's doing what she's doing and why it's research-based that's Mm. truly a gift and i i love that Especially yeah. because it's research based. Yeah, Stephen, yeah, absolutely. Would you would you send me that thing about oxytocin? Because I want to I want to read that myself. Actually, that I will, sounds interesting. I will definitely I will if definitely see it. if I can find it. <laughs> and if I do find cool. it, I will put it in the show notes because that seems like a claim that should be backed up. Um, totally. Mm-hmm. But man, even the idea. But it of that. also sounds interesting. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what what kicked off literally this whole train of thought as we get closer to wrapping up here is I was driving back from Helena, Montana to Billings, Montana last Sunday. And we missed our regular Mm -hmm. recording time because 
a three and a half hour drive became a six and a half hour drive because of how atrocious the roads were. So, so icy, so slick, terrifying. Gotta love Montana. Absolutely terrifying. In fact, I think the day we were traveling back was, I don't know if you guys, you guys have heard, but, uh, two tow truck drivers actually were struck and killed on the interstate trying to pull other people off the road. I did see that. I heard about that. Um, I think this was the same day we were traveling back. In my experience of my body, I was so focused on being in tune with the road. You know how you can like feel if you have traction like through your gas Mm -hmm. pedal? Um, Mm -hmm. I was paying attention to the car so much and like I had all music off, all podcasts off. Dixie had her earphones in to listen to stuff because I, I like, I needed to focus and I got home and we pulled into the driveway and I, I peeled my fingers off of the wheel for the first time in like six hours. And wow, my experience of being an embodied being was terrifying to me because mm. I finally got there and everything like pull into the driveway, put it in park and my whole body just like collapsed. Like I peeled my fingers off and I realized that I was, I had been white knuckling and gripping the wheel so hard that the three outer fingers of each hand were completely asleep. Like I had cut oh. blood flow off to my fingers because I was gripping the wheel so hard. Oh, that's terrifying. And this was just one of those things where it's like, this is also what it means to be in a body. And Josh, you've mm-hmm. already spoken to this as well. Like the fact that pain and suffering are present. And I, I took that further into the concept of death. Like, I don't think pain is an accident. I think it's actually a a beautiful mechanism that our bodies have been designed with to alert us to when we're when we're treating our bodies poorly. Mm. And uh, man, so that's that's what got me thinking about this this for this episode. So mm. thank you for going here with me. Well, maybe to end on a more positive note. I kind of had a question for you guys. I'm ready. Shoot. On the opposite end of pain. What is like, what are the moments or the types of activities where you experience that flow state in your body? Oh. For me, it's in drumming or uh, working on a bar as a barista with other people, especially like people who like know what to do. Like you can just like be in the flow and you like don't even have to think about it. Oh my mm-hmm. gosh, yes. I can relate to that feeling so hard. I worked for City Brew for five years. Yeah, like that well-oiled, machined flow state. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, quite honestly, I, I get into that state when I get to sit here at my, my station and edit a podcast. Huh. Uh, like getting back into the conversation we just had and getting to, you know, trim the stutters, trim the, trim the ums a little bit and craft something i'm proud of to put on our podcast feed Mm. that's where i get it i also quite Mm. honestly get it when i'm at the gym when i get to like ride a bike and get my legs working i love that feeling of hitting hitting that groove where it feels effortless but but you know your heart is still doing its its good work to keep you oxygenated Mm. right like your heart rate is up but you're not Mm -hmm. grueling you're just like man i'm doing it and then getting off the bike Oh, it feels so good. Yep. That's mine. Mm, Mine definitely is when I'm in the kitchen cooking, when I can just allow my body, like my hands to grab the spices or the ingredients that I need and to smell the aroma and to hear the sizzling and the boiling and the the crispiness of whatever it is I'm making, um, because I know it's going to nourish me and also taste delicious because I'm a good cook. Um, (laughs) Not to toot my own horn. Humble brag. Um, but also I think another one is when I'm walking my dog, um, when Alex and I go on walks, we go on, um, it's a pretty long walk. Um, our puppy is pretty agile and she, she could probably walk for forever. Um, but just knowing that I'm kind of letting go of myself and just allowing my feet to, to carry me and just talking with my husband about his day and, hearing Daisy bark at a deer that passes by and feeling the wind, I'm allowed to, I'm allowing myself, I should say, to just let go and to just be at that moment. Um, Mm. Not have a care in the world, just walk and just allow myself to be there um, outside Mm. and Mm. to breathe, which is Mm. nice. I love those. 
Well, I also wanted to say thank you to uh, everyone who has been leaving us a rating or a review on iTunes. Oh my um, gosh, yes. Thank you so yes. much. You guys you guys have left us so many kind words lately. Someone uh, mentioned in one review that I feel like if I was there with a cup of coffee and expressed an alternate view, they would show it so much respect and use it to lead to deeper discussion. And mm. I don't know how to say thank you for that. Like that is Bingo. exactly the feeling we wanted to convey with this. and. Thank you. I'm glad that that feels like it. Yay. So to everyone who's been leaving comments, uh, engaging in our Sunday discussion questions, leaving us reviews, thank you. Oh, yeah. It's really lovely to have you with us. Absolutely. We'll also say a thank you to Louis Zong for the use of his song In Full Color off his album Here. Also, if you're not already following us, we are at RevelPod on Twitter and Instagram, and uh, we do post discussion questions every week. We do... Love having discussions with you guys about we do. the topics that we're bringing up. That's a good place to actually engage with us directly. Like, I know I'm intentional about hopping in on those discussion questions and, and adding additional questions or comments or anything like that. So if you want to engage with any of the three of us directly, that's the best mm-hmm. place to do it. For sure. Very good. Emily, would you lead us out this week? Absolutely. Our bodies are gifts, and we are capable of doing so many incredible things. As we are raveling together mentally and spiritually, just know that our bodies are present with us. Mm